Hi everyone, welcome back to Play in the System, the first episode of 2021. I'm here in my home studio, decided to shoot the camera out looking onto the forest to give you an idea of the inspiration behind today's episode, which is all about the release of the new Snow Palms album. I'm absolutely delighted to share this with you. It's been a huge amount of work. You know my love of all things physical, of <laughs> of vinyl, and of tapes, and even CDs. And the smell of the lacquer. I love like fonts on it. I just love, I love the album. Not just this album, but I love albums. I love vinyl. I love the size. I just think it's just such a wonderful experience to hold music in this way. So I'd firstly like to say a massive thank you to everyone who contributed to this record. All the friends of support, Alex and Richie, Infidel's crew. I'd like to thank Megan, who did an incredible job working on this record whilst firstly very, very, very pregnant and then through the birth of our son and through multiple lockdowns where she just managed to deliver such inspirational vocals in the shortest time scales known to man. So massive respect, Megan, you are amazing. I'd like to thank Mark Kirby, the big man behind Village Green for uh, providing this immense platform for artists to make great work. And it happened that my favorite record of last year, other than Paul Nataraj, who is co, who is taking over playing the system today, Max de Wardener's immense music for detuned pianos was my favorite record of last year and that just feels such a privilege to be on the same label that is releasing your favorite music so mark thank you big respect i'd like to thank simon gogoli for doing some additional mixing where i lost my mind and couldn't carry on he did an amazing job i'd like to thank Ruben Astley and Scott Gubbins for some additional production work, just bits and bobs. You wouldn't have thought it, but you're a massive help. I'd like to thank the incredible Sam Williams, producer, who did a wonderful job in the early days, bearing with mine and David's total madness. I'd like to thank Frank Stein, you're a legend. I would like to Fact, I would like to thank Nick Frank for the incredible artwork that you do. I've never met you, Nick, but your work adorns most of most of our releases. So yeah, you're a total legend. I'd like to thank Richard Robinson, who put it all together design-wise. And I'd like to also thank 
the whole Village Green team, Tessa, I'd like to thank John Rust, I'd like to thank David Roger, who did an incredible job working with us in the studio. And mostly, I'd like to thank you for being here, for giving me energy to play in the system, for giving me energy to make music. And yeah, this episode is dedicated to you. Thank you so much. So, what do we talk about in this episode? Well, it's a Snow Palm special, so we talk about the making of the records. We also touch on, and I've made quite an exhaustive list here on my phone, so don't forget. We talk about Paul's record, the incredible Cobblestones and Kachari. Inevitably, on some faraway beach comes up, because David Shepard is the author, so we talk about Brian Eno. We talk about some of the methodologies behind making the record, and one a particularly important one was a demonstration I saw at Ableton Loop. I love Ableton, I love Ableton Loop. And it was Boogie Wesseltoff and Henrik Schwartz. And they use a particular improvisation technique on Ableton, which I think should be called the Schwarzeltoff method or the Schwarzeltoff methodology. So yeah, we talk about that. Obviously, we talk about some oblique strategies. I don't think that's a day goes by, by without talking about a bit of that. There is obviously some Philip Glass. There's a bit of The Fall. There's some Steve Reich. I love Susan Chiani, so I always talk about Susan Chiani's modular synthesis. There's some Max Eastley, some William Bezinski, some Italio Calvini, some Robert McFarlane, and, of course, some Suicide. Not that kind, the incredible band Suicide. So it's jam-packed full of stuff. It's also accompanied by a lot of music. Thank you for being here. There is one disclaimer, it's not episode six, it's episode four. I got a bit carried away, but I thought I'd leave it in anyway because, you know, I'm a bit dyslexic, I'm a bit number dyslexic, I'm a bit light on details. There you go. It's wicked to have you here. Enjoy playing the system episode four. I hope you love it. Thank you, Paul, for hosting it, and I'll see you all soon. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Play in the System, episode six. This is a Snow Palms special. I'm incredibly excited to welcome both David Shepard back onto the show and Paul Nataraj back onto the show, whose album Cobblestones and Kichari is quite possibly my favourite record of the year and by the looking of it David too they are now sold out so even if you want to buy this wonderful cassette you can't but you can listen to it on Bandcamp and it's fantastic. So Paul is here to essentially chat to us about our new record which has come out today. So here it is I've uh, put it up in the background it's called Landwaves it's out on vinyl and go to Bandcamp where you can buy the wonderful vinyl, you can buy a CD if you're that way inclined, or you can just stream it. So I'm going to hand over to Paul, who is our guest host for today. And yeah, I'm struggling to talk and put this behind me. <laughs> Can't do two things at the same time. So yeah, I'm going to hand over to Paul, who's going to uh, talk to us about our records and celebrate the release. Thank you very much, Paul. 
Uh, no, thank you very much. I mean, it's such an auspicious day. What an amazing uh, honour it is to be able to chat with you about the record and for you to have asked me to do that. I feel uh, very honoured indeed. Thank you so much for the for the big ups on my thing as well. That's uh, amazing. Um, but yeah, what an outstanding record. We'll get to it in a couple of minutes. Uh, and what essentially what we're going to do is kind of talk through each track. But for those people who kind of don't know, which I'm sure there's not many of those listening. <laughs> but um, what is kind of the story of Snow Palms up until this point? So where, how did you guys get together and, and what's kind of, what's the vibes? Where does Snow Palms start? Uh, it starts with me. It starts with me. Um, uh, and it starts in 2012. Um, and the story begins uh, when uh somebody asked me to make a library record right a library record um using a lot of mallet instruments which i already used on some other projects um and i started making this this thing and uh it kind of started developing into something that i didn't really want to do do a library record anymore uh, i thought this is quite interesting and the, the idea came from um putting together two disparate things. One which was uh, kind of you know, music of, made with mallets and then and then something that was um, contrasting with that. Uh, and that's the idea of snow palms, this idea of complete kind of opposites in a way. So the, the original plan was to do kind of like chamber music and uh, on top of kind of uh, mallet, mallet music that sounded vaguely electronic. And one of the things that underlines uh, or, or, or sing sort of hallmarks what Snow Palms is, and I think it's even more so now Matt is on board, is this idea of uh, electronic music that sounds organic and um, human music that sounds electronic. And somehow these things, there's like a weird Venn diagram thing goes on. So that was the, that was the plan. Uh, and so I made uh, two, two records of uh, Snow Palms, essentially as me. I uh, had a couple of collaborators on that, a guy called um, Chris Leary, who, who records as uh, um, Ochre, also worked on those records, but it was mostly me. Uh, and then I met Matt. I met Matt because we were both teaching uh, in the same place, um, teaching music, music stuff. Um, and uh, we just got on really well and we had very similar kind of tastes in music and certainly kind of goals in music, you know, where we want to go with music. Um, and uh, he comes from a very different background to me, but we kind of seem to be going in the same direction. And so to cut a very long story short, we try, we try working together to, to do a record for Matt, and it kind of evolved into, into this sounds like Snow Palms. You're in Snow Palms now. So that's, I kind of took him hostage. So that's, that's, that wasn't that short, was it? But anyway, it's quite a long story, but there you go. No, that was that's really cool. And so, uh, when you start when you started getting involved, Matt, what was uh, how did you approach it, and kind of what were you, what was your thought process? Um, you know, how did you feel about uh, collaborating with David, and and what what happened there? What was the energy? Yes, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. I'd just come out of Infidels, which was a ten year crazy electro punk journey around the world. And I'd always loved rock and roll. And my dad's been a massive influence on my musical taste, who is a real lover of the strange. So he'd, 
he loves like our Hooli records and you know at school was working on a project with me on Alan Lomax and I can't believe looking back on it now how lucky I was to have a dad into Alan Lomax and talking to me about Mississippi field recordings and playing me this crazy music and this was very much kind of in my blood I suppose because you know I'd been brought up on it and so I loved rock and roll and, and the history of all of that but I also loved minimalism and one of my first ever loves of that was tubular bells as a young kid hearing that kind of repetitive cyclic music and anyway infidels was a project that I was involved with that really exploded and totally took over my life and my brain and it and it you know, it kind of derailed me like I think all big things do. It sort of flung me aside. And at 33, I was absolutely smashed to pieces. But I really credit Brian Eno with saving me because what I learned from Brian Eno was that rock and roll is almost a church. It's a, uh, we kind of reify rock and roll styles, or certainly did. I don't think we necessarily do anymore. But Brian Eno taught me to look at it like a system. And he got me excited about systems music. And I turned up, I did a master's in education to try and refine who I was and got a job teaching at Westminster University. And I was tasked with teaching a module with David Shepherd on creativity. So I turned up for day one of work and on week two, I said, you know, are you the same David Shepherd that's written the Brian Eno biography on my shelf? And he was like, oh yeah, that's me. I was like, oh, what are the chances of that? You know, it just blew my mind. And um, I decided I was out of music. I quit. I was done with it. I'd sold loads of my stuff. I couldn't cope with it. But a couple of years later, I started to try again. i bought a studio, hired a studio every week and I'd go there on a Monday in Bermondsey at the Biscuit Factory and I thought, well, I'm going to invite David down on day one. Well, day one, I just sat in it. I couldn't actually make any music. I'd so lost my sense of, I don't know, create. I don't know what I'd lost. Everything, <laughs> something, my mind. <laughs> so day one, I just sat in the empty space and made no music at all. So then week two, I said, David, please will you come to the studio with me? I need, you know, I need some vibes, man, you know. And David is just such a wonderful creative because he almost came with no predisposed idea of what the outcome was going to be. And we just got lost in this process that that I can only really call the Boogletorf method. So there's an Ableton jam with Boogie Wesseltoff and Heinrich, Heinrich Schwartz. And they're using Ableton as this live improvisational tool. And we just started to do that, you know, playing instruments. And we, I think we're going to do a talk on this as well. But it seemed to me where we were used to sound on sound, we were now experiencing sound and sound. So we didn't need to anymore lay a track and then stop and record another track and another track. We could do all of this in real time because the technology allowed this for the first time I've ever experienced. And over time, we kept doing this and thoroughly enjoying ourselves. And we presented the record to Mark Kirby from Village Green, which he loved. And he just said, well, why don't you just join Snow Palms for album three? And the fruits of all of this labour, which began in 2015 
are now released today for the first time. So it's been five years, really. Wow, that is uh, amazing and really interesting in terms of how that process developed from kind of uh, through Ableton uh, and yeah. kind of go, going back to this this idea that David talked about, which really, really comes through in the record, which is kind of this really uh, interesting tension between electronics and live and how and how that yeah. shifts and modulates um but so just before we talk about the record i just wanted to talk as well about the the idea of repetition and evolution because yeah. obviously the 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 records kind of got uh harks to steve reich and uh, philip glass and eno and craft work and all that kind of that that uh, minimalist stuff kind of really reminds me of jg ballard as well it kind of feels like a jg ballard <laughs> kind of story <laughs> that's amazing because david tell tell paul what we almost called the new band if it was going to be a band well we were going to call it T terminal beach which is uh or the terminal beach, which is a jg ballard uh, short yeah. story we definitely that was definitely in there that's some of that and it's it's even there on the cover actually of this record i think it's quite ballardian yeah cover. definitely it's so which is not which we didn't do on purpose it's kind of like a, a long long story which i won't go into now how we ended up with that cover but um yeah so yeah it's kind of in the it's in the dna yeah well it sings it sings through uh, so yeah so can you just talk to me a bit about repetition and and how, and and your take on repetition what that what that means to you and kind of that well, i always get it from, from uh, one of eno's uh, uh league strategies which is a repetition is a form of change um and the fall we dig repetition, B-side of the first single. Um, <clears throat> and we dig repetition. It's a, uh, it's, it's, it's a great it's a kind of anthem to minimalism in a way. But um, uh, side issue. The, I mean, I think I, I'm with Philip Glass in the sense that, you know, that that music that he made, and I'd like to think, I hope it's not too, too much of a, of a leap to think that we make too, is it's not, it doesn't actually repeat. It's not repeating, it's evolving, but it's sometimes evolving very, very, um, microscopically or slowly anyway and, and um, over time it's you know the idea of actually repeat I think the music that repeats is like house music or, or something like that or that music we were talking about before we uh, before we started I was mentioning deep house deep house deep rural house new genre watch out for it mm -hmm. um, but this music doesn't actually repeat it sort of evolves very slowly in a kind of cellular way that, that small things are happening every bar something is happening just about um, but it's that we talk about the um matt will laugh but we talk about the the um dissolve reveal process so it's quite filmic the sense of you know most music is jump cuts you know, you know most music goes from this bit to that bit to this bit to that bit oh we're in the chorus oh we're back to the bridge you know that kind of way um and personally i have kind of somehow whether i like this or whether it's the only thing i can do i don't know but my default is always to move gradually to the next stage and then from there to the next stage and then to the next stage so it's this it's dissolve reveal you know that's that's always what we we, we do whenever we get stuck on a piece of music that we can't kind of progress it we always just try to dissolve reveal and uh, it nearly always works. you just fade one part out and fade another one up that's all it is there's no secret to it but it kind of if you do it properly it kind of has a it gives you long momentum which is why some of our tracks are quite long um it's almost like they can't be any shorter because you have to have that period of time to actually achieve the transition. So it's all about, it's all about that. So that's, yeah, those, those are my feelings about, I don't know, Matt's going to say something completely different now. Well, I think, 
it's just going slightly back to my story post infidels i also left london at that time and for me electronic music had always been connected to in industry city urban areas and i'd really felt the electronic nature of the graffiti on the walls and the lights of the city so when i moved into ashdown forest i had a you know at the same time as having this kind of emotional breakdown or wig out or whatever it was called I couldn't understand how I was predominantly an electronic musician in a forest and what relationship does electronic music that I know have to this you know I look out my studio window and it's just forest everywhere how does that relate to machine made music and it was through nature that I found the way into electronic music again which is through my daughter goes to Montessori school so she studies sacred geometry and fractals and looking at the the patterns of the trees and how everything shimmers in the forest and then you suddenly realize that we are surrounded by this incredible form of repetition but it's also a form of change where the repetition is not exactly the same each time and I became obsessed with how do I capture that in music which links so wonderfully with minimalism because they too there was the the New York minimalists but there was also the west coast almost more spiritual minimalists looking at it all you know from a very different prism the I forgot what was the name the tape center San Francisco tape center Don Buchler, uh, Susan Chiani, and that seemed to really, uh, Terry Riley, have that, it was so natural. And that unlocked the door. And then from that, I then bought my first modular system because that facilitates that repetition as a form of change. And uh, on a forum yesterday, we were all talking about, if you could summarise in a sentence... What are you trying to do with the modular system? It was incredibly difficult to answer, actually. And I had to I had to do some research <laughs> to answer the question and found a Max Eastley quote, which I slightly hybrided into... Hybrided? Bastardised? I don't know. Into improvisation as compositional process. So the modular system does jump cuts so badly... It, it, if you try and do verse chorus on a modular system, it takes a colossal amount of knowledge and it's, it's borderline impossible. What it does fantastically well is slow evolving patterns with chance and random processes. So I found the mod, I learned the modular system and we found in Snow Palms that I've always been interested in that machine-human relationship and the, the transference between machines to humans to machines to humans. So we started to use the modular as genesis and then score the modular parts for other instruments. So, yeah, that's, I suppose, my journey towards repetition and back to it. But Interestingly, with the infidels, a lot of the backing tracks originally were written in this way, and then they became cut into verse choruses with vocals put over. But 
I know Richie, who is in the band, hears Snow Palms, and it for, for him very much sounds like early in, Infidels instrumentals. So it was kind of, for me, always there, but it's just brought out in different ways. Really, really interesting. I think there's a little segue there for me, yeah. which is kind of this idea of the fractal nature of things and the shimmering nature of complexity of uh, ev evolution, the evolving sound, uh, into the title of your first track on the record, which is Atom Dance. Mm. Um, and there seems to be some kind of linkage there, uh, maybe tangential, I don't know. So um, so the, the, the record's called Land Waves. The first track is Atom Dance. Can you tell us a little bit about um, what's going on with that track? Where did that come from? What's the story of uh, Atom Dance? Well, it starts with, with Matt and his, and his little boy. Yeah. Doesn't it? Yeah. It's interesting, it was near the end of the process. So we, we look at the album in three pillars. Everything Ascending, Land Waves and Atom Dance. They're the, the Roman pillars holding the ceiling of the album up. And we, we always thought very conceptually like this. We wanted these three huge pieces of work on the record. And Atom Dance was the final pillar that we created and Everything Ascending was the first. So when we wrote Everything Ascending, my wife was heavily pregnant with our son and she was doing all the vocals, had to sit down. I think she was weeks away from giving birth. And there's something wonderful in the way that recording can be like a Polaroid. It can just capture a moment. But then by the time we got to Atom Dance, he was two. so. He was kind of whizzing around the studio. And by this point, I'd, I feel like I'd kind of, I was sort of level two modular out of 10, as opposed to level one. It's such a complex thing to learn. But I'd actually started to get it to do things that I wanted it to do. It obviously did a lot of things that I didn't want it to do, which is, I think, the beauty of a modular. It's like interacting with a, with a musician. But the, uh, the pattern that begins Atom Dance is from the Intelligel Metropolis sequencer which is a wonderful techno machine, but I was looking at it like a minimalist machine because you can so easily click in and out mutes. So you can start to reveal patterns. And this is something I learned from studying Katrina Barbieri's work, who does that brilliantly. Just, she lets the patterns emerge over time. And I thought, I really want to do something like that. So yeah, I created the pattern that was the beginning of Atom Dance. And it was like a thundering kind of electronic piece and presented it to David. And I said, I think this is Snow Palms. And he was like, okay, cool. Well, you know, put it on some real instruments and see what it sounds like. So I kind of mapped it out in this very quick pitch. And that was incredibly fast. I think it was only about an hour's work originally. Mapped it out to glockenspiels and clarinets. And, and then David came in as the great arranger. And uh, I really see David's so good at arranging, editing, mapping, conceptualizing. So he took it from this very maximal piece, which was everything always, <laughs> to a few things sometimes. So yeah, I suppose it's probably good to hear your take on hearing that first demo, David. Yeah, it was like seeing it was like seeing an enormous piece of marble, beautiful marble. Um, and seeing that the 
an outline of a sculpture had been made, you know, an outline of a sculpture had been made in it, but it was still too monolithic to actually appreciate, it was too big. So it's like chipping away some of the marble to reveal that something that you could actually then kind of appreciate the beauty of it sort of thing. Because it was in there, it was, it, I don't know how much of it was luck and how much of it was, was um, you know, thought, thought in a way, I think probably a mixture of both, but it's, it suddenly seemed to present itself as like a, something that could be arranged rather than just a kind of sonic event, which often those modular based things are. They're kind of these beautiful events. Um, but we've, we found a lot, uh, a, lot of, um, a lot of luck or success, if that's the right word, by with, with the modular, where something's really quite minimal to begin with and sort of saying, stop there. Let's not try and develop it anymore. Let's just use that as a, as a template to build on before we get into the world of, you know, what I like about modular, I think what Matt, Matt likes about modular, at least partly, is that, and what most people don't do with it, is is that it's, it's, it can be just one part of the picture, rather than just, it always has to be the only tool you're using. So most modular people just do music with modular, don't think about it, any other instruments. Whereas for me, it was like, well, this is just like a fertile uh, gate opener, you know, and it's, it's, it's setting a template down. You can build with, build with that any way you like. And to me, it reminded, me of the process that we we'd first begun with the when we were just like doing our kind of jazz jazz odysseys in Ableton, you know, mm. which was really just it's just an improvisational tool, isn't it? That's that's the way we were mm. using it. Um, and so it's that electronic and human conversation, just in a slightly different language, you know. But um, so that yeah, that's how I saw. It. I mean, I just thought there was I could see this amazing thing in in this monolith of music that mm. Matt created and so it's just mm. a matter of uh, you know he, he, he creates the mountain and I just like chip chip away at the mountain really until something forms and, and I've always been a, a real fan of music in parts I love the Philip Glass music in 12 parts and uh, he's got two with music with changing parts I love this idea but I've always often thought about two-part music I love I love records that have a part A, which is most of it, and then a, something totally new comes in. It just always rocks me, and it's something we did a lot in the Infidels with the big tracks, Can't Get Enough, and and uh, Explain Nothing into 503, and I really wanted to do that again with, with these tracks, with Land Waves, Everything Ascending, and Atom Dance. So we had part A, which was, a, you know, turned out as we stretched it, it turned into this sort of eight minute long piece, and we were really, you know, looking for I was thinking, we can go further, it can go further, let's get a part B. And that was just pure fluke. There was this melody line that seemed so calm, I could never, I'm nowhere near the musician enough to write a line like that. It's, I think, I don't know what, it's some bonkers time signature that the clarinets player told me it was in 15, 16 or something, I don't know. But it just emerged, didn't it? And we sort of chased it into the woods. We were like, there's a melody, what is it? And that's the one that emerges towards the end. And then Megan, who did such a wonderful job on this whole album we all had the kids around as well so it was a bit like was it cluster <laughs> cluster experience in the country but the kids brought an urgency to it all where we just couldn't rest on our laurels and take our time so the vocals were all dropped in so quickly and Megan arrived and I think she you know the average time was probably like 11 minutes we had Megan for sometimes 15 15 minutes, sometimes 21 minutes, sometimes three minutes. So short periods of time because of the lockdown situation and everything that was going on in the world. And she just sang that melody line and David suggested that she use the solfeggio. 
And so we tried to work it out. I'm sure we got it wrong with the various implementer. <laughs> yeah. But I, I mean, it, but it, we, I think we, in the end, we went for the, what sounded like kind of a language rather than actually just using the strict sort of uh... And then when that came on, it just, it just exploded. And I just got chills all down my body. It just something connected at that moment and and I I knew out of the hundreds and hundreds of tracks we'd made that were rubbish this one was special super that's a beautiful answer uh, thanks guys like, honestly um, so it, it, it's interesting I was saying to Matt before we started that uh, when I was listening to it the two the first two words that I wrote down were quiet urgency uh, and it's kind of got this uh, you know there's an underlying really uh, powerful energy about the record but it, it also kind of just allows you to be you know which it, which is re really interesting in terms of what you were saying about the way in which especially the human elements and I'm, I'm talking specifically about the vocals were put down I think that's quite interesting and and you were talking about the the birth of your your, your son as well happening around that time so yeah really interesting so uh we you move on then to the everything is ascending mm. which is uh just an unbelievable piece of music uh really really stunning so uh what is the uh, what's the story there and i suppose th so this record's taken you off uh five years of of work is that right so well, it probably if you cr if you crunched all the days together, you know, probably not 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 more than six months <laughs> because yeah, it's made yeah. it's made in kind of like isolated. Uh, some of it was very isolated, and then we had more intense periods. But we started working together, I think, in two thousand and fifteen or sixteen. Yeah. So that 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 kind of the space between those um, sessions, let's say, how how does that affect uh, how this record's come about? I mean. Um, mm. You know, because a lot of the time, if you're working on something, it's kind of quite intense. You're in that zone and you're just knocking away at it um, and you're in that headspace. So kind of leaving it and then coming back to it. Do you think that that's changed uh, the outcomes at all? And if so, how do you think that? I think it has quite a big impact. So I think it gives you time to uh, reflect. And um, reflection is quite important, I think. And, um, and probably, you know, I'm a big note taker in the studio. I you know, I fill notebooks with, with with ideas. And Matt is much more of a kind of in, impulsive and dynamic person than I am. Um, and I think this is how we work because, and that's the, 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 when you're talking about that kind of quiet urgency. That's kind of that's sort of us, isn't it? In a way. Um, but I think you know, going away and thinking about designing the record, I think what we need is this. But we both have that. We just apply it in slightly, slightly different ways. We both have that thing of what the record. You know, we thought about these pillars. We thought about what do we need in between. What's the kind of energy that we haven't explored yet? Things like that. And that all comes from stepping back, at least a little bit, I think, and, and looking at it with more distance. So that, I think that is that was quite important. But I mean, everything ascending was really was the first track. That took a lot of work because that was the that was our door opening track actually when we when we went from we did a remix for somebody on Village Green uh, called Matt Dunkley's a film composer um, and for a for a record store day uh, EP that the label put out so we did a remix of his uh, orchestral piece um, but we completely reinvented it basically and that kind of by doing that we we arrived at a methodology I think which we then 
I've applied ever since to some some degree. Although it was it was quite quite hard thing to find in the beginning. Um, because I think we were still on the, on the tail end of the Ableton kind of ex, ex, you know, explorations and, and then finding this kind of analog meets electronic uh, signature. So anyway, long story short, um, everything, everything ascending was, was where we put the pieces together. The woodwind, you know, the, the winds, the voice, Megan's voice, the mallets, the electronics. So it, the proportions of those were kind of worked out with, with, with everything ascending. Um, and also what Matt was talking about earlier, the idea of a part B and a part C yeah, thing yeah. that it could be a journey and take you on a, a bit of a cliche, but you know, take, take you somewhere, move you somewhere, transcend, you know, go, it's not just a piece of music for, 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 for background, it's, it's, a, it's a more immersive kind of thing than that somehow, and, and it's definitely transportative, if that's a word. Um, so that that's quite an important track, I think, for setting us setting us going, and, uh, and that was the one that was released as a as a single before, you know, a long time ago, because the album was supposed to come out a long time ago before the COVID uh, interruption. Mm. Yeah, that was the, that was the the launch the launch. And I remember saying to you, "There's a quoting that Leonard Cohen line. You know, there's a there's a crack in everything. That's where the light comes in." Mm. That was so that that was absolutely that 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 moment of like, okay, the, 
it's like you know god is in the house kind of thing so this this is what you need to do now you know so it was great it was great it was a great moment but we were completely uh, knackered by the end of doing that track <laughs> remember that uh, it, it it feels like a a track where you know and matt's saying it really that, that kind of you, you you tend to get lost in it mm. you know and it, and it is transcendent in that way and you need to get lost in it so um and i just had a question about when you're working together how easy or difficult is it to get lost together because you kind of within this musical space which is losing which is where you go to get lost and that seems to be a personal thing but so how how do you kind of uh how do two of you get lost in that space? That's that's the question. It's, yeah, it's a good. It's a good question. Uh, I, I think there is there's a certain amount of music making, and you know this, uh, Paul, just as well as anybody. That's mechanical. You know that you actually have to put paint on the canvas before you can do anything. You know, you can start to form an image. You know, so there's always that element of the kind of and then do that and then do that and then do that and, and kind of methodically build up build up something. Um, but then that's why the reflection po point is so important, I think, because you do have to step back and go, what have we made? You know? <laughs> and how can we, if it's starting to sound predictable, what can we do to it to make it surprise us? Mm -hmm. And what I love about working with Matt is that he responds, his kind of um, surprise gene is the same as mine. <laughs> so when he kind of goes, oh man, and I, I, I'm also going, oh man. and. Uh, and that's great because then you just know, you know, you know you're working towards the same goal. And there are times when we've started making something and we just, let's just listen to that again. We're not doing anything. We're just sort of listening like a couple of teenagers, kind of, this is cool, you know. Um, and that's a lovely feeling, you know, it's a nice thing to share. And that gives you the enthusiasm then to, you know, try not to break it as you develop it further, you know, try and let's remember what it sounded like when we first heard it. And that's something to always sort of bear in mind as you, as you keep building. We're very much, um, we're kind of, Unbelievably, because we talk, both of us talk so much. <laughs> the studio process, what I like about it is it's quite sort of tape rolling, really. We sort of just set something up to record and get quite lost, get got quite lost in process and sound and don't really do a right lot of talking, I don't think, in that process. And we just let things be. And having that comfort to improvise with people is, is quite rare, I think, because often I've often felt pressured for results. You start working with someone and they're like, well, go on then. And you're just like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what to do. Um, but when I you're looking- remember, Sorry to interrupt, but I always, you just yeah. reminded me of a brilliant thing that, he, that uh, Ian, when I interviewed Eno, told me this thing. He has this thing where, when he starts a track, because he doesn't, never knows where he's going, he doesn't compose in any kind of orthodox way, in pretty much the same way we don't. He says it, he often starts with a drum machine and a piano going donk, 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 because he just wants to put something down. And he says he's he's never got over the imposter syndrome of feeling like a complete fraud where all these kind of technical people are around. Kind of, is this yeah. it? Is this what you do? Is this Brian Eno? And I think we, you know, I think everyone has that. Yeah. But it's like it's quite nice uh, to be that naked at a certain point as well, and just to yeah. kind of go, I wonder what this is going to turn into. You know, I like I like that's the magic. You know, I love yeah. that. Kind of, yeah. yeah. Sorry, I interrupted you. No, no. Uh, uh, any, any, any interruption that starts with yeah, that reminds me of when I was talking to Brian Eno. <laughs> it's worthy of an interruption. But I think ultimately, to summarise it, it's 
I got really into, and David will know, and you probably will as well, Paul, who said this, because I can't quite remember whether it was John Cage, but the idea of, instead of being a god of composition in the sort of Wagner sense of controlling everything, being a gardener that plants seeds and letting them grow. Who, who is it that said that? Probably Cage. Sounds like Cage. Sounds yeah. Cage, yeah. Um, and that forms really the basis, I think, of our approach and to things. And I've looked for a long time to avoid any of my own tropes, you know, the kind of licks you might play on the guitar or every instrument comes with its own sort of set of tropes, doesn't it, of things it likes you to do. And we look to try and do the opposite. That's why I play the mallets, because I, yeah. no, I don't know how to play them. Uh, you know, I can play the guitar really well. I mean, I'm, I'm quite a good yeah. drummer. Um, but we don't really we don't do any of that. Max, There's no guitar, it. yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm a guitarist as well, and we don't yeah. play the guitar in the band. All our studios are full of these lovely guitars. We never touch them. There's no yeah. guitars on the record, you know. There's um, one, a diddly bow. There's a diddly bow, yeah. There's oh, one diddly bow, which is a guitar, with kind essentially of. The, be the beginning of electric guitar, which is a bit of wood, a pickup and a string. Mm. No we'll friends, no nothing. Yeah. Yeah, so there's no, so yeah, it's like that thing of, um, yeah, not having chops, you know, is great. Because anytime you achieve any, anything that kind of has an emotional kind of effect on you by playing an instrument that you don't know what you're doing, it's somehow really profound and you kind of, cherish it and use it in a, in a perhaps a more creative way than you would if you're kind of oh i know what to do now i'm just going to do an inverted chord here you know and then you just repeat something that's that, that's kind of predictable and mm. i think that's what's what i love about your record so much paul is that you know there's no chops there's no there's none of that stuff in it it's just very pure in a way well thank you uh I'm going to leave that where it is, but thanks. Mm. Yeah, I think, and I think you're right. A bit, and I think that probably comes from not being a player, but also doing things um, like we were talking about before, being a bit isolated, and I and enjoying that isolation because actually, mm. it's kind of nice to do things on your own terms. Mm. Yeah. Um, so uh, moving on to uh, track three is "Evening Rain Gardens," um, which is quite choral. Uh, yeah. Orchestral. So, um, what's the uh, what's the story? What's the story there? Is is there a gardens and was it raining? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, yes. Um, it's actually all it is is it's the end of everything ascending. Um, that was that was that we cut off. So it actually, it sort of joins on on the record. Yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. A little prospect. Um, so really, it's it's a it's a code. It's another part of that. Of that. Of that track but it kind of seemed to occupy space and when when it existed on the some i can't remember matt may remember when we were building it on the screen it, we just called it the, the japanese garden bit that's mm. just kind of what it got called um and so that's sort of where that 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 came from and it's i think at some point when we were finishing it was raining i think it was, mm. Like, mm. It was that it was that profound um they kind of got they got the name but that's another one which is really um came together because uh, you know we'd had lots of work on it and then Megan came in for 10 minutes did the did the vocals literally I think in about 10 or 15 minutes and then went away again and suddenly we had this kind of like kaleidoscope uh, piece that we didn't have before before it was just a kind of ambient drift that was kind of like coda you know taking us out of that that big heavy track like a, a kind of a sorbet course you know after the 
after the blowout. And uh, yeah. but, then, but then it turned into something much more kind of like shimmering and uh, and, and magical because of her, her voice just like painted on top of it. I wanted a sort of hybrid of William Bazinski and Juliana Barwick kind of feel a sort of I know movie. we were listening to we were listening to Juliana Barwick that day I remember yeah we were and we, were saying, um, we said to her can you do something Barwickian yeah <laughs> and we remember pissing ourselves saying the word Barwickian <laughs> and I'd I'd seen uh, William Bazinski in Berlin and it just blew me away, you know, the stillness, the way he stood there in a really dark room with one light on him and full sequin suit. <laughs> so, so Bazinski. <laughs> and the light fracturing off this sequin suit. And I don't know whether it was planned or not, but it was absolutely magical. And then the utter shock of being in conversation with William Bazinski for an hour and what a different kind of person he was to what I imagined. You know, he's such a rock star. He's like the ambient Iggy Pop, so loud and boisterous and incredible personality. And his music is so calm and still. So Evening Rain Gardens to me was a bit of a, you know, homage to that Bazinski experience I'd had. Nice. Uh, brilliant. And that's really, really lovely. And then the title track, Land Waves. Um, so uh what's yeah waves of what what's the story there um is it sound waves across the land i mean it was uh or again this kind of human movement into complexity moving from certain urban spaces to rural spaces what what's the what's the kind of thinking uh, um I, I, I like i like all of those that, that that'll do uh, that, they're, they're all good um actually there's i remember i had the title written down in a notebook uh, and it was I think I'd seen a, a photograph. There's somewhere I think it's in Western Australia. There are these rock formations that look like, quite literally, look like the sea. You know, they're just kind of they're, just, they're really weird. I think it's in, somewhere in Western Australia, um, and they might even be called the land waves. I think I might have just stolen it wholesale actually. But uh, and uh, I, I love that idea of again, it's the sort of the solidity of electronics and the fluidity of you know organic action, or if you want to call it that. Something again, yeah, again, it's the old Snow Palms duality thing. Uh, that to me seems to say quite a lot. It seems, you know, it's also that feeling when you're, it's something I've, I've done on some of my other records is that, is that feeling of when you're, when you're kind of at one with being a human is often when you're the, uh, the most daunted as a physical presence. It's that idea you have if you've ever been kind of suddenly find yourself you, know, you, do, you do a long hike in the mountains or something like that and you suddenly look around there's no one else around and you see the cloud passing across the mountain and you think oh my god you know I'm just another tiny speck of this enormous great uh, vista that's going on um, and it's something and I love that feeling because it's like that that's the true meaning of awesome you know, that, that feeling of the awesomeness of, of the planet that we live on um, and the tininess of ourselves as these little, little kind of uh, flickering presences amongst this monolithic world—it's um, something about that. And I think the mu hopefully the music has at least the tiniest 
quality of that in it, and then I, I would be happy if, if people could detect that. But that that's certainly the no, notionally uh, where that came. I had a, I did a solo record about five years ago, and it was called Versical Land, mm -hmm. and it was I'd been doing a lot of traveling in mountainous places. I've been to Norway, and I've been to the the volcanic Greek islands, and I've been to uh, Southern Africa, all in that year. God, those days seem like a long time ago. Um, yeah. And I just was finding myself <laughs> in all, all of these places. I'm writing in my notebook, you know, you know, here I am again, and I'm, I'm feeling that feeling. It's almost like being in outer space, but yeah, I'm, I'm rooted to the earth, you know. And this kind of, I don't know, it's kind of like a splendid isolation sort of feeling, I guess. Mm. But mm. that's what it's all about. Yeah, I think that idea of feeling very small in a big space, I think that that record to me was trying to capture that feeling yeah, when you're in a big landscape. And I think again, moving to the country, moving to the forest, you feel that a lot. Whereas in this, I don't think I'd necessarily felt like that in the city, but yeah, suddenly feeling very small and insignificant and in a good way. Yeah. In a good, in a really beautiful in a way. way. In a, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, well, hopefully that the, that track really captures that. We were also reading a lot of Mark Fisher at the time, and uh, his book *The Weird and the Eerie*. Yeah, has a great chapter. Too. Yeah, it's fantastic, isn't fantastic. it? And um, he has a chapter on Brian Eno's *On Land* album. Yeah, and where he take, where he takes issue with me? Does he? He does. <laughs> well, he didn't take issue with me. He doesn't agree on my interpretation of *On Land*. Yeah. Um, because he thinks it's a, it's autobiographical. No, do I think I think it's autobiographical? And he thinks it's, <laughs> yeah. it's one one of those. And I think he, God rest his soul. I think he thinks it's a kind of universal. This idea of using the you know, literature because that record's made with you know rocks and stones and stuff like that makes it universal. But for me, I my interpretation was that it's Brian's autobiographical record. You know, it's ambience as auto, autobiography. autobiography. Because he actually took those stones from places he played in as yeah, a kid, yeah. stuff like that. So, anyway, side issue. But uh, definitely that, that on land was in my head. Land waves mm. on land. They're not, of course, they're related on some level. Also, Patti Smith's Land. Don't you know that record? No. Uh, so for some some reason that, that, that I always put them together. Well, somebody they've all got the word land in. You know. <laughs> that could be. Something to... I've always I've also been very uh, supported in my music making uh, from Richie from the Infidels who has been a real source of energy and inspiration to me to keep going and he's just such a firecracker <laughs> as a person anyone who'd ever seen the infidels live he's the hairy one going crazy at the back headbutting a dustbin <laughs> and that the end of land waves to me was a homage to richie who would always tell you know push me to go further harder higher wider deeper and uh, I think Landways was definitely Snow Palms finding a new gear. <laughs> yeah, we so, it definitely, yeah. you know, that's the thing that Matt has brought to this whole project. I mean, I had a track on the last record, Origin and Echo, which was called uh, uh, Circling, which did have a kind of uh, a kind of climactic ending section, which for me felt like I was really like, pushing the boat out. And but that, that was nothing compared to what Matt was envisaging. <laughs> You know, it could go higher, further, as you just said, higher, further, and that's great for me because that's like out of my comfort zone. Yeah. But it's also exhilarating, you know, to to do and to feel that it can be done, and still belong to the same kind of uh, sound world that everything had, had previously been in. 
That's quite. I think that's quite an achievement. That's what Matt has, has bought. Is we call him Doctor Rockets as he brings this kind of like uh, this energy thing. I mean, I think if left to my own devices, I'd be quite happy. Like you know, making these increasingly kind of watercolor kind of music that maybe no one could would even ever notice. Mm. Um, so it's been great for me actually to strap on the, the jet the jet skis. You know, and, uh, go for it a bit on this on this record. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, there's definitely a bit of punk in there. You can just, uh, the, you know, just, uh, yeah. just a, a little. I felt that when energy. we played live, actually, when we played the, the, especially when we played Land Waves live, I remember thinking, this is, this is, this is really, this is quite punk rock. And that's, that's... I'm, I'm also, a, I'm a massive Underworld fan, and my dad bought me Second Toughest in the Infants, and I'd not really encountered anything like it before. I was still in my mid-teens I think early teens and he also uh, <laughs> he got me to deliver the labour leaflets around the local village and uh, he bought me second toughest in the infants put it on a tape for me to listen to my Walkman and I distinctly you know some of those the way music and your life can fuse together to create such a powerful memory it's got such an incredible memory of hearing that record for the first time and posting labour pamphlets through people's doors in Crayford and just the, the way the underworld layer music into this euphoric, transcendental plane. It's like the music just hovers there, like a kind of cloud. And it just absolutely blew me away. I had no idea how it was made. I didn't know anything about sampling or anything. And I just wanted... I always seek for that height in music. And love pieces that begin and end, you know, like Steve Reich's 80 Musicians. It just, it's just there all the time. And Landwaves, I think, has an element of my love of Underworld in it. Cool, cool, cool. And uh, so it's funny, uh, kind of going back again just to my notes quickly. Because between Landwave and Thought Shadow, which is the next track, and it's going to let you go riff on that for a few minutes, but... I wrote human movement, universality of movement from atom to rain to land to thought to flight um, in terms of the, the process or the, the movement between land waves and thought shadow. So on that note, um, thought shadow. We what should have had you write the right. I love that. I love that. Yeah. That's just, yeah, that's just totally yeah, I think, made. You, know, you totally nailed it there, I think, Paul. Um, yeah, Thought Shadow was done, that was all done really fast. That was an improvisation, mm. um, uh, really fast. And unlike nearly everything else on the record, that was, well, that it was one, one take. That was one, one take. take. And it was, it was, we'd been listening to Kathleen Aurelia Smith, uh, a track on her record, oh, yeah, yeah. Ears, which is called uh, Stra Strata, I think. Um, it has this very kind of uh, Eno discrete music quality to it, and it seems to kind of kind of slow pulsation, um, but it's very beautiful, very sort of like a like somebody something falling down in slow motion into a kind of beautiful pool or something. Uh, and so Matt had something on the modular which was like a sort of repeating um, pulse. I think we just kind of used that as a like a click track almost, and uh, mm. which we did, which is not anything we ever use really. Um, and uh, I think I just improvised. I think we improvised it together. I think we just played in the room. Yeah, you played clarinet on a keyboard. 
live and I just got I just got the modular and uh, I had this sequencer by Make Noise called the Rene. And what I quickly realised it can do brilliantly, and this is what so hooked me into modular, was it does its thing, but it, you also can change everything in real time. And, and it's so easy to kind of tell it to skip bits and repeat little bits. So it's got these wonderful little electronic touch plates where you can kind of drop notes out and in. So there's this very repetitive pattern, but if you listen to it, it's got lots of quirks in it because I'm, you know, just, I think we're really bad at not touching things if we can. I remember going to the science museum as a kid and being utterly delighted at the amount of buttons and dials that you can interact with. You know, if you basically stick someone in front of a sequencer with buttons and dials and go, press play and don't touch it, we're actually not capable. <laughs> there will come a time when the finger will go in. <laughs> sounding like hanging out with my son as well the finger will go in and you'll disrupt it we can't resist it so and this is what drew me to modular so much and that was my first i think win from modular was that pattern on thought shadow and having david playing in real time recording the midi and uh yeah playing this rene live and it sort of being half computer half human and and yeah that just track was one of the really easy ones it was written in four minutes as is done and then we just hired the wonderful Christian Forshaw and Nick Moss to play to play wins and they just replaced the MIDI parts live in the studio and it was done you know <laughs> great <laughs> that's that's it's really cool um uh so I just wanted to touch a little bit actually and you've kind of alluded to it there on choices for instrumentation so if you're, you know, you're saying that you're using these, um, uh, the modular uh, workouts as a template. Yeah. And so what, what's, your, what's your process in terms of discovering what instrumentation is going to work or uh, kind of be layered on top of those, on top of those templates? Well, we banned strings, didn't we, David? Yeah, we banned strings. We said no strings because strings always sound great. They're just great, you know, stick strings, strings into electronic music and rock music and pop music, and they always sound so good and rich. So we thought, well, let's not go there. And I think it was just aesthetically driven through our ears. I think we're just hearing clarinets with the electronics. I think it's also that thing. I remember when first making a record using a synth, which is, I think, a, is it the SH-101? And the only sounds that, any, that I liked on it was when I really rounded everything off on the LFO or whatever, or whatever it is. I can't remember how you do it now. And uh, it, the more it sounded like a woodwind, like a clarinet, basically, or a flute, the more I liked it. And that's the way. And he ended up using those sounds. And there's something about the woodiness of that, which the modular can do too. Uh, it's kind of woody. And I, I can't really explain it any more than that. Yeah. When I hear that sound, it has an emotional effect on me and uh, and it's which some other electronic sounds don't have i mean they have different effects on me Craftwork were brilliant at using that and i think it's because florian schneider was a flute player and i think you can detect a lot of the tonality of um when Craftwork have that absolutely kind of uh poignancy about the, the sound of the music i think it's when the the tonalities are, are approaching that that area too so for me it was always that it's that this is going to sit in this world and also, if you look at the tradition of gamelan music, the way that mallets and flutes or flute-like instruments 
they kind of always have always gone well together in that music. It also happens in a lot of African music where you have, uh, you know, the kind of uh, balafons and and some form of kind of uh, pipes, you know, or flute type, type music. So there's something must be something human there. I don't know that someone needs to write a PhD probably. But uh, um, it feel like they're natural natural bedfellows, but that are still relatively unexplored. I mean, Philip Glass obviously used a lot of flute and, and uh, repeating keyboards. And um, Steve Reich, most famously music for 18, has those pulsating clarinets. And they're clearly they're part of our vocabulary too. But I think we try, whenever it sounded too much like, like that, we'd always like nix it, you know, we'd always say, no, that's just too, that's too obvious. <laughs> so we were more into it when it was e either driving a piece, like on a, um, Everything Ascending, we had this weird skipping time signature, which came from clarinet part. Uh, or as a sort of sort of semi-ambient colouring, really, rather than purely sort of composed, you know, because a lot of the time the, the wind players had a lot of trouble playing the things we'd written because we, we don't have a clue what we're doing when we're writing the parts in terms of the technical parameters of playing wind instruments. Mm. Um, but as a result, they're also coming out of their comfort zone and they're arriving at interesting thing when we say well can you just improvise these four bars they'll do something that perhaps they wouldn't have done because they're in an uncomfortable place and so uh sorry that's a very long explanation but that's really the with the woodwind it's not just a kind of oh that'll make a pretty decoration because if we'd gone that route we could have just done as matt said we've just gone for a string quartet which is just like you know if you put a string quartet in a piece of music it's like putting gold leaf on on something it's always going to look <laughs> good you know but it's probably quite meaningless mm. you know it's, it's expensive and meaningless a lot of the time that's my opinion some thinking of the woods are less like that. thinking about it the, the record is very made up of a lot of monophonic parts and instruments as well I, d I don't think we noticed this at the time but a lot of you know the modular is notoriously difficult to make polyphonic and expensive voice monophonic flutes clarinets woodwinds so it's a lot of interweaving monophonic lines. I mean, there's a few moments when we just banged a Philly Corder on things because of its just sheer joy of Philly Corderness, the way it wheezes and <laughs> wails over things. But mostly it's sort of monophonic lines built into clouds of harmony rather than actually polyphonic instruments. Oh, there is piano in there as well. You know, we, we broke a lot of our own rules to be. <laughs> when we needed to <laughs> yeah well it's always the way <laughs> yeah you've got to break them when you need to <laughs> yeah, it's just not working <laughs> yeah. um, so uh, and and just as a before we get on to the last two tracks just as a kind of uh as an extension to that what about the recording process because it is a beautiful sounding record you know it sounds stunningly gorgeous uh so so how how did you go about recording um what, what did what's that process look like for you guys well it's, it's really funny just to say that because there's a matt, matt can give you the full technical spec on everything but uh one of the things we did is when we we actually sampled a load of of, of uh, mallets at one point to 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 use kind of to build up tracks and in the end i think we replayed everything but we we when we sampled the tracks we had a really buzzing amp guitar amplifier on in the studio and we didn't we, and we didn't notice. with its with its tremolator on as well so it was like 
So even worse, it was like going But then when you pitch the samples, obviously the gets faster and slower. So it was like And we got through this whole laborious process of making diligent sample making, but left on a bloody Vox amp in the background. So, but again, you know, being lovers of rice and it's gonna rain and this is what sampling does so beautifully is exposes these details to create their own artifacts and color. So that kind of stayed. So the bits, bits of that are left in because, and I think this is what, this is interesting about the collage process of writing, creating, you know, recording music is the, is the uh, texture. And this is what you don't get, of, you know, if you're recording out of the packet, you know, in what I call like industrial door music, you know, where, where great library of sounds, all the sounds are there and everything's beautiful. There's never any friction, you know, there's nothing is ever rubbing against anything else to create some weird third thing. No, no sparks are ever flying off of that music. And, and yeah. I think our, our kind of approach is so kind of, it's meticulous 50% of the time and completely arse over elbow, you know, the, the rest of the time. Yeah. And both things have their value. And I think you have to have the yin, yin and yang of, of those things. Yeah. I think yeah, uh, we, Dave, David Grubbs calls it the brick dust of recording. Oh, that's it. Yeah, we talk a lot about about dust and we we have a lot of parts in the records called scree. You know, when I, I went on uh, the only holiday I've managed to go on with my wife, Megan, we went to the Lake District and the scree of the Lake District really seeped into my veins and how the summit of Scorfell Pike is so British. It's like you get all the way up there, and it's it's really. I had to say, disappointing is is wrong, but it's such a bizarre summit. <laughs> Especially by the time we got up there, it was all misty, so there was loads of people on it. It's very moony and barren and full of scree, and I just there's something so British about the summit of our highest peak. We like we like our scree. Yeah, so there's a lot of we talked a lot about scree in the record, the brick dust. I'm I'm such fans of that. But the the record, I also believe great productions are such a mixture of textures, and I always love those records with so many different like textures of brick dust. And I think again, you know, Paul, this is maybe where we've re convened sonically over all these years is your record is so full of things that you can feel in it and I think that's so overlooked and back when probably all of us began music making you didn't have doors and things came with presets but they were all the 80s synthesizers and they were notoriously horrific sounding so we learnt very quickly avoid all presets for anything ever like if you can erase them get get rid of the presets and i feel so fortunate to have my first electronic instrument that i bought was a, an s950 sampler which had a tone that was great for jungle bass lines and nothing else in it so you had to make all of your own sounds so that's a philosophy that stuck with me throughout my music making career and i've always been notoriously skeptical of presets of all kinds and the building up of the record was quite fascinating and it did present some 
astronomical technical challenges. For example, multi-layered glockenspiels create these build-up of peak harmonic overtones, which then when you compress them in an electronic way, actually would create frequencies that David would describe as his filling rattling frequencies. It's like, well, I don't know what it is in there, but something's rattling my fillings. So some of the glockenspiels are incredibly laboured where I'd have to create multi-sample round robins using random processes to trigger so you've get, you get the same note randomly in 10 different strikes with very particular release decays so as to reduce these harmonic build-ups. So it's this crackers mixture of very thrown together ad hoc brick dust improvisations and some moments where a certain sound as I've spent a month the the intro um, glockenspiel for Atom Dance was about a month long in the making to get it just just so so it had exactly the right decay and exactly the right amount of randomization and Tone. What's what's funny is that the instrument is the most sort of childlike and innocent, simple. It's the hardest thing to actually record. Whereas everything, you know, some of the, like the, the modular, just just sounds great. <laughs> That's fine. Yeah. Whack it down. It's just like it's just weird. It's weird. And yeah, you, and the, the glockenspiel is not designed to be uh, to, to be layered. That's for sure, because <laughs> it will take your your. It's it's mostly used in uh, Springsteen uses quite a lot of glock, doesn't he? But a lot of the time, it's just... Doubling instruments. Yeah, it's often just used as a sort of ding, a sort of strike to add a bit of sparkle, but to create quite a rock and roll record using Glock as a main instrument. So it's fairly challenging. <laughs> I always loved Dream Baby Dream by Suicide, you know, which has that... Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That, that, Glock. that was one of the... That's, that's, that was in my mind when I first started using them. I don't know how, how uh, Martin Rev did that, but, but the sound of that is still un, unequaled. Was it not recorded in uh, Springsteen Studio as well to 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 heighten uh, the Glock uh, the Glock link? I think uh, so. I don't know. Good two two points. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, a bit of googling and then go on to this. Cool. That's amazing. Thank you for that. Uh, really, really interesting, um, interesting, interesting. And it does sound amazing. You the record really beautiful. So uh, the last two tracks are Kojo Yakei, Yakei, Yakei. Kojo Yaki, we call it. Yaki. Um, uh, so, and uh, White Cranes Fly, which, uh, am I right in thinking of some kind of Japanese link? Kojo Yaki is a, a Japanese term. Yeah, it, it's, uh, it's a term they use for a kind of weird uh, tourist trend to, to go and um, nighttime visits to... Uh, industrial factories and um, chemical plants, which are uh, lit up. Wow! So it's a really, really peculiar ja- Japanese, uh, you know, kind of. Uh, I do. It's a, it's a trend. <laughs> I read about it, and I just thought it's, it's, it's fascinating. And again, I thought it was totally us. You know, this idea of uh, the industrial and the and the human. You know, kind of, kind of, uh, and also the you know the awesomeness of an industrial building um 
turned into something very sort of very aesthetic. Um, I thought that was just that was just fascinating. I just thought, well, what, what would the music sound like that was that? Um, I don't know whether we've done that or not, but that was kind of the the, uh, the process. And the, the music on that track, Kojoyaki's, uh, came from a, a that was a very torturous process too. It started out being something completely different, but it had something in the in the structure that was. I think again, it might even date right back to the Ableton Improv sessions. But there was something about the structure which I liked. I couldn't put my finger on it. Mad thought I was mad. Why are we pursuing this? Why are we pursuing it? And then I think there was another of those eureka moments where I can't remember what it was we put on it. Maybe it was the marimbas or something. And it suddenly kind of like made made sense. It wasn't what I thought it was going to be, but it was something else. And and it had this sort of. It does feel kind of weirdly Japanese, you know, but it also sounds quite African. It just doesn't feel like it belongs to any kind of tradition. Or something. Yeah. Um, so that's, yeah, it's. That's, we talked a lot about and read a lot of books that we read Invisible Cities by Paolo Calo, is it? And uh, there was another book, I can't remember the name of it now, but we were, we were really looking for imaginary spaces, sort of places that exist but don't exist. And I think this probably of all the tracks embodies that idea the most and I remember reading one of these books and it talked about this island off Australia on the map that had been there for years and years and for some reason no one had bothered to actually check it was there <laughs> so fairly recently someone checked and it's been made up all this time and, and these I think as humans we we really I feel, I feel a sense of loss at that age of discovery of the world and something really romantic about maps with bits not filled in. So we I really like that the uh, the Italo Calvino, the invisible yeah. system, is, is, is imagining places that, um, that are defined by things which we don't define places by in the real world. So mm. is a, he talks about one of the cities as... Um, where instead of air, they have mud, <laughs> things like that. So it just kind of, it's completely bonkers. But it's 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 a really great way of kind of redefining your attitude to what 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 space is and what place mm. is. Yeah. Um, and and think, those were just great kind of ideas to to think about in terms of abstract ideas when you're making music. You know, mm. Kojo yeah. Yake. Similarly, you know, it's a, in some ways it is it's a thing, it's a real thing, but it's a very abstract idea. Why are these people? dressing up and having a date and going to look at a factory. Why, why are they doing that? It doesn't matter. They're putting themselves in a, a non-orthodox place for to have a non-orthodox feeling, I suppose. Yeah. So, And that's what we're trying to do with the music, trying to put you somewhere. And it, it was another one of those compositions where Megan came in for her 10 minutes of vocals and we, as inspiration, just said Meredith Monk. And that was where... I think Megan showed her true colours. She started to relax a bit in the studio and we suddenly heard her unbelievable ear for sonic harmony. And she just tracked, she did sort of five passes and in her mind created these incredible sonic clouds of harmony. And I'd never, I'd never seen that compositional brain at work and I couldn't believe how how complex she can hear 
harmony and texture and she sort of did it yeah 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 it was it was it all sort of emerged in the end and and it reminded us quite a bit of harold budd i think um there was this part on the record called that we called the impressionists which was those kind of glacial dings that the clouds of vocals come out of so megan pretty much wrote all of that stuff on the fly very very quickly and then all we did was we just abruptly cut a few bits to kind of create kind of blocks of silence in it just suddenly like stop so it kind of gives you this kind of feeling and and uh yeah the labor was was really rewarded when that extra layer came on and then again we both recognized that that was the real emotional heart of the record so the 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 rest of it the i call it like the my life in the bush of ghost stuff then kind of formed the bed underneath that those big sonic clouds of emotion it's interesting as well that stop and start motion of those mm. vocals uh, is really industrial yeah uh, especially, especially on that track and yeah. it, and it and it does have that kind of industrial chug about yeah. it in yeah. some ways, which which is quite interesting with the with the factory stuff going on. Well, I always yeah. think when you, when those vocals come, it's almost like the lights have gone on. You know, it's like the, the factory's yeah. lit up. You know, and then it, then it's, they turn them off again or something. There's something, there's something going on there. <laughs> uh, Brill, that's uh, amazing. So, uh, White Cranes Fly, the last track uh, on return, the album. Return, return. White oh, Cranes return. return. Oh, White Cranes Fly, then White Cranes return. <laughs> yeah, yeah. we haven't written right White, White Cranes Fly yet. We're doing yeah, it backwards. It's the record store day exclusive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Remix you by one. you, Paul. <laughs> you one, Paul. So, White Cranes uh, return. Yeah, that was another improvisation, which was done pretty fast as well. That was also fast. It makes it sound like we should have done this record in about two weeks. <laughs> the really long tracks took a really long time. The really short tracks took very little time at all. Uh, there was an improvisation with Matt playing piano and me playing the uh, the philocordia, the philocordia, uh, you know, the 60s organ. And I guess, I can't remember how it started. Was it another modular kind of pulsing? I think it was. Yeah, I, I wanted, um, I'd read a about uh, inspiration behind Bon Iver's third album and he, he said he wanted it to feel like someone had just discovered a cassette tape in a puddle and uh, I just I don't really listen to the record that much but I love that I love that idea of found cassettes it's so so intriguing isn't it when you find a cassette you just really want to know what's on it so I took that as inspiration and wanted to create that scrunchy cassette warbly thing so we had a lot of fun with that and David played the diddly bow through the modular and fee with an ebo and feedback just howling all over the place and processing that through the modular system over the scrunchy drip filled cassette and again it was a, another another composition that was transformed by Megan's incredible vocal you know that what we called in the press release, the vocal flights. And suddenly that turned a very linear composition into a really shaped composition where it all felt like it was building to this emotional climax. And that was mirrored in, in David's use of the chords on the Philly Corder, that there, we only really return to the home chord once at the very end. So it's 
it's almost this feeling of being away for the whole record and then the final chord of the album is home yeah we we we, only, we finally found the tonic <laughs> yeah the and, um, <laughs> but that's why it's called white cranes um i've always there's a there's a there's a I love the idea of white, white crane, this idea of the, the symbolic of uh, spring returning and then kind of rest, coming to rest and um, had that quality to it. And I think what we, what we got Megan to do was to sort of double some of the parts that were, that were, that were there with her. And as soon as she did that, it gave it this poignancy. You know, before mm. it, was, it was this kind of moody, but then, then it had this real human poignancy. Um, but it also has this kind of... The kind of rhythm is quite it's like slow flapping, like wings. Um, it's just weird. It's like you kind of think, how does this stuff get made? So me and David ran around the studio, we did, we did slowly that. flapping while slowly Megan flapping. sang vocal flights. Yeah. That's it. White Crane's return, and it sounds like the, I think it sounds like the title of a great lost sort of uh, uh, Russian movie from the 1930s. Yeah. So that's what I liked it. And that was it, and then we were done. Super. Just like, just like that. Easy peasy. Yeah. <laughs> God. Yeah. It does sound like you should have just knocked it out in a week, lads. I don't know what you're playing <laughs> at, honestly. Uh, <laughs> well, it, it's been a pleasure to be, uh, to have been invited to talk to you about it and uh, for such amazing insights. It is an absolutely stunning record, I have to say. Really, really beautiful. So uh, where can people get it? Uh, so what what's the links and where does it where where do people pick it up from? Well, it's it's out today. It's out, it's available on uh, vinyl, CD, and all the other formats known to mankind uh, and womankind uh, on uh, in all the usual places. We have a Bandcamp, Snow, Snow Palms Bandcamp. You can find that easy enough. Go to Village Green, our record label. Um, it's on it's on all the it's on all the things you'd expect it to be on. You can cool. also stream it on Spotify as well if you're you a lover of that platform, which of course we all are. Um, yeah. And yeah, Bleep, I think it's in rough it's trade. Bleep. Uh, so what, what's next for you guys? I know you like the album's just dropped, but um, what is it? Is the work in progress? Are you are you thinking about what's uh, the next bit? Or there are, there are some tracks that are, uh, that are underway. Yeah, what what, what they're going to be and how they're eventually going to come out. I mean, we, we don't really know yet, but we've got. Got kind of an idea. Mm. We 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 started album four, which has been great fun. Um, working with Christian Forshaw a lot. Uh, he's been involved with, I think, a live interpretation of Eno's Ambient One. Uh, did you do that? And he's also done a lot of Michael Nyman stuff. He played with Michael Nyman. He played with Moondog. Wow. Yeah. So Christian's we're working quite a lot with Christian on some compositions for album four, which is really exciting. Megan has you know become quite an integral composer in the band as well which is quite interesting and we also we did a performance at the south bank center our first ever gig and last gig it seems and we were all set to get snow palms live really rocking and uh, covid has shut that down a little bit so i've got some ideas to propose to david about some kind of modern I quite like the idea of people giving us inspirations on the web you know saying oh how about this and then us doing some live improvisations you know on uh, on twitch or something like that so yeah lots we've basically got lots of ideas <laughs> going forwards but yeah a lot of a lot of energy 
we can't get in the same room at the moment, obviously. So that's a bit of a, yeah. bit of a drawback. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully soon that'll change. Yeah, let's hope so. Absolutely. Um, well, I'll let you sign off, Matt, seeing it's, it's uh, your podcast, isn't it? So, Well, <laughs> Paul, thank you so much. I can't think of anyone else in the whole entire world that I would have rather have done this and you've just done such a marvellous job and I'm going to go back through the podcast and extract some of those wonderful things you said because I really want them you know when you put little quotes on your band camp I just that's just the greatest thing and, and actually made making the record worth it you know hearing someone verbalise it in that way so thank you for taking the time to interview us on the podcast thank you for having a takeover and enjoy the rest of your day Paul and for you we are pumped for your new record so hopefully find the inspiration for that don't forget to buy go, go out and find a really expensive version of this on ebay or something <laughs> thank big you thanks to, so much thanks for having big me shout guys. out to matt littler as well for the incredible artwork. yeah yeah big amazing up, big up matt littler every time yeah yeah cheers dan all right all the best now thank you cheers thank you Are so you? much bye yeah so there you have it the release of the record it's now out into the world we are absolutely thrilled we've had some live offers so we can't wait to get the snow palms machine rolling so thank you again for listening i hope you really loved it we've got a new episode currently being edited with angel david guillou and that is talking all about the release of her incredible new record thank you so much stay safe stay sane stay creative and we'll see you all again soon bye <laughs>